Welcome back to Film Music Focus. Today we have the immense pleasure of having super awesome guest Joel McNeely with us today, who, as you all know out there, has contributed an enormous amount of music to a wide range of things, both in film and television and records and video games and you name it. Uh, Joel, welcome to the program, man. It's good to have you. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be here. Everything going all right? You're, You're staying somewhat busy? Everything's going fine, you know, knock on wood. Um, I'm sure you'll hear this from a lot of composers you talk to. My life hasn't changed all that substantially. Um, I get up in the morning, I have breakfast, I get my coffee, and I walk out back to this room, and I work all day, and then I go back inside. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I've lived the life of a hermit for a long time, and, and... so I'm kind of used to this. I I feel for the people who aren't. Yeah, it's um it's an interesting time to say the least. But uh, you know, one of the just since you mentioned it, you know, you kind of go back and you're the hermit. It's it's a. Uh, I remember the first time I ever heard anyone refer to that environment as something along those lines. And I was really young. I think it was 13 or 14. I heard John Williams kind of talk about it being a very monk-like environment. You know, always having to go back to whatever that environment is uh, for the composer and. Um, immersing yourself in it and and it's almost kind of uh, amplified that environment it seems like with everything going on the last couple months it's just a suggestive thing for all (laughs) you know it's yeah it's it's interesting because if you're used to it like I am Mm -hmm. it it becomes your normal thing and and I quite enjoy it I I I like the solitude of the work and that's where I find the deepest focus um the big difference in my life is that, you know, now that the kids are grown and my wife, who you, as you know, is a very busy musician um, with the LA Chamber Orchestra and USC and Colburn School, she's normally gone all the time. Yeah. So I finish a long day of work and I go inside to usually an empty house and because the kids are off at school and yeah. she gets home at 11 or 12 at night. And so on 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 my front i'm actually having more human contact than before because people yeah. are forced to stay home yeah so yeah yeah there are it's, the added it's benefits bizarre. it's bizarre so you know we've gosh it's been i mean decades i remember the first the, your first television show was what in the late 80s right 86 87 ish 86 86 87 yeah so i mean here we are nearly 40 years later it's amazing <laughs> i mean no I, <laughs> yeah no uh, yeah i mean that i mean that with a, as a compliment because you know i mean you, you know how volatile this business business is and you know just how yeah. up and down it is and how much of it is um reliant oftentimes not at all on what you've done it's the perception of other people on what you've done and, and sure. you know, the opinion making, sure. the relationship side of it all. But um, so yeah, let's just kind of dial back a little bit and um, well, a lot bit. And let's go back to kind of your early years when um, what are some of your first visceral memories of kind of falling in love with music as a whole? Um, and then at what point did you feel like 
you wanted to do something in this amazing world we call film, TV, and now, I mean, you know, media music these days. But back then, it was just, you know, movie music, good old movie music. Yeah, right. Well, the the initial tug at music was was from as early as I can remember. There was just a, you know, I, I really kind of believe you're born this way. And, um, you know, we had a piano. Both my parents were musicians, not professional musicians, but they were musicians and uh there was the piano in the living room and from the time i could walk i was crawling under the piano and then as soon as i could get my hands on something to play um i got a wind instrument i started playing a little whistle and i learned to play that mm. and then i learned to play the recorder and then i learned to play the flute and then i learned to play the saxophone and you know kind of but every time i picked something up like that little recorder i kind of had it down in a couple weeks you know, I just went up to my closet in my my bedroom and I just played until I could really play it. And it came pretty easily. And so I didn't realize until I was in my mid-teens that, oh, yeah, I was kind of born this way, born being able to do this. And, and then I kind of realized that, well, okay, that comes with some responsibility that, you know, you have to actually work your ass off if you're going to make something out of what you've been given um what you were born with i don't know if it's given or not um and so yeah it was it was just like breathing my margaret my wife is the same way it's she started the violin at two and a half and she was you know playing concerts at the age of six i mean it's just who she is uh so um yeah, so then as soon as I could get the chance, I convinced my parents to send me to the Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan for high school. And that's where I fell into a pond with a bunch of other very like-minded kids and who were all really good and really accelerated at what they do. And then it was like, okay, game on. We gotta gotta really work hard here because these kids are amazing. And if I'm gonna not make a fool of myself, I gotta get going here. So um yeah, and then, uh, you know, going from there to University of Miami, and I decided I was going to be a jazz musician. And Miami had and has an incredible jazz program, and I just, I just, uh, I learned, I learned everything about being a, a, a really strong player. I, my, my, that my focus was on being a player down there, and which I've always felt helped me as a conductor because I really do understand what good playing is and what it takes to play something well and, and uh, how to get good performances out of people. Um, to answer the part of the question about, about you know, film music and how I got bit, um, it's a story I've told many times, but I'll retell it here. Um, so my dad taught at the University of Wisconsin. He was a professor in communications, taught playwriting and drama, and he started selling scripts to Hollywood um uh and eventually was writing for shows like the twilight zone marcus welby uh you know the, the man from uncle um and they eventually gave him his own show so when i was in seventh grade he said we're going to move out to california for one year i'm going to executive produce this show it's called owen marshall counselor at law and to do the main theme he hired elmer bernstein and who I, I knew of, because even then, 
uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was was just the most amazing piece of music I'd ever heard. I, from the first time I, I heard it, I was transfixed. And so I knew about Elmer. And for my birthday, my dad flew me out to LA to go to the recording session to meet Elmer. Mm. I get to go into the room with the orchestra. This was at Universal back when they had a, a recording stage. And so, you know, Elmer knew that the exec producer's son was coming and he was an aspiring young musician. And so he had an extra set of scores made for me wow. and he had them on the podium. And he was such a generous, kind man. He was so charming. And uh, he invited me up to come look at the, the scores. And he says, I've got this here for you. And, and then it came time to start. And I was like, okay, well, where should I go? And he says, oh, you sit in that chair there. And he had me sit behind him on the podium and the lights go down and the film is projected on the screen behind him and he starts conducting his music and you know man it was just over yeah at that moment just over you can hear that main title too i, I like to go back and listen to it sometimes on youtube it's just google the main title for owen marshall counselor at law wow, it's in five it's in it's five in, four. In, who writes who writes a main title for a TV show anymore in five? No, not for a TV show. I mean, Jerry wrote his fair share of great odd meter stuff, but you know, yeah. uh, but Elmer, man, he certainly knew how to do it. And I, I love going yeah. back and revisiting his music. I mean, it's it's timeless. You know, great well, great music is timeless. And he he, he wrote so much of it. Um so you 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 ended up finally here in LA. And one of the one of the things I kind of wanted to throw out there and just kind of get some of your memories on, I mean, hear how it, it came to be. Um, this was not a project where you had yet written um, the original music, but you were uh, an orchestrator on it with David Shire. You know, mm. uh, Johnny Five still alive, Short Circuit from 1986. <laughs> you know, that's one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid in the 80s. I mean, you know, like the 80s okay. had had just this bizarre vibe of movies. And I mean, just the 80s movies, it's its own category of stuff. So um, how did that one come up? Well, it, it came up oddly enough through my father because um, dad had done a lot of TV movies at that point. And whenever he was lucky enough to get David to score them, he did. So they worked on three or four things together and considered you know, each other friends. So when I was even at Interlock and I was introduced to David, I got to go to some of his sessions and watch and uh, kept in touch with him over the years. Yeah. Went to see some of his shows in, on Broadway. And when I came to LA, we had lunch, went over to his house, we had lunch and he looked over some of my scores and he listened to some of my stuff. And it's like, great. Yeah. Good for you. Welcome to town. And about a couple months later, he called up and he said, listen, um, would you be interested in working on this movie? And at Eastman, my teacher, Ray Wright, had always said, if anybody asks you whether you can do something, whether you can or can't, you always say yes. Yeah. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I, I'd never orchestrated anything for anybody. And here I was on a pretty big feature all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, I don't have that much to add to David Shire. I mean, what, what am I going to do? Yeah. He knows what the hell he wants. So, but he was so kind and, and brought me in and fortunately didn't throw me all the way in the pool. He had the legendary Jack Hayes 
do most yeah, of the orchestrations, but he gave me enough that I got my feet wet. And, and, and yet he was very demanding. I had all of these kind of habits of being a jazz writer where, you know, you'll put a dynamic on the trumpet on the first part and you'll draw a little squiggly line down the rest of the four trumpets. And he called me up. Like, I remember like five in the morning, one morning looking at my scores. and I was like, what the hell is this? It's a squiggly line with the, with the thing. And I said, I don't know. That's how we do it in school. And he said, well, it's not how you do it here. That's so funny. Yeah. But he was very nurturing and kind and, and, still is still is a yeah. dear friend so yeah. yeah so baptism of fire it's funny though you mentioned the squiggly line story because i mean i mean you know especially now all these, these years under your your tool belt uh so to speak there are so many versions of shorthand with the scores yeah. that kind of come across in this industry and and it all comes from the same place trying to save time and yeah. um you know so that that's kind of that's fun well, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, if you look at a Nelson Riddle score or a Billy May score, you'll see that all the time. It's a jazz thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to get back to Nelson Riddle and Billy Mays a little bit later in the program. Um, and, yeah. you know, just to kind of uh, uh, whet our listeners appetite um, for those that haven't heard all of Joel's arrangements on some of Seth's albums. Uh, he wrote the shit out of them. So we're going to talk a little <laughs> bit about that a little bit later. Um, Representing Nelson Riddle in amazing ways. So let's fast forward a few years to the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Super fun. Um, a heck of a big sound in that series. And um, sounds like you really had an opportunity to um, flex some chops and be able to just open up the palette. And, you know, just kind of very quickly, um, before we pivot to, to a scene we'll look at here from the second season, The Phantom Train... Um, you don't have that all that often anymore in television these days. And ironically enough, you're one of the few guys that still does by going in and recording some of these bigger things, you know, whether or not it's on American dad or it's on the Orville, um, having that kind of a recording orchestra, uh, for television, which was later edited, I believe into didn't Paramount or somebody later edit those into kind of like, um, 20 different feature length episodes. Yeah. 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 That was George's intent from day one yeah. was that the stories would all knit together right. as two hour movies. So from right. conception, script conception, they were designed to go together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we take a look at this scene, the Phantom Train, how how did this one come about? Because, you know, it's that's a that's a big deal. Um, you're really young at that point. George Lucas, few people knew who he was around the world. Um, so how, how did that one come about for you? Uh, it was life changing, you know, yeah. I, I had, um, agents at Gorfain Schwartz mm -hmm. who represent John Williams yeah. and, um, Larry Rosenthal, Lawrence Rosenthal was the initial composer that George hired to be the lead guy and to write the theme and everything. And they were looking for, I think George had requested kind of a young up and coming composer and, because I was at um, John Williams' agency, they, they they went to John and asked him, and he went to the agents and said, "Who do you recommend?" They sent him some of my material, and he, and he he um, endorsed the idea of my getting to meet with George. So George came down um, to the Bel Air Hotel. I didn't know at the time I was the only young composer he was meeting with. 
Um, I thought it was, you know, I was going to go there and there'd be 30 guys waiting to see him. Um, but it was just me. And we went in and we talked for well over an hour, just about music and life and fascinating, fascinating man. And talked about art, kind of everything but the show. And then at the end, he told me the concept of the show and that he, each each show was to be its own movie score um, and should be really redolent of the time and the place mm -hmm. of the story. So if you were in Russia in the early teens, it was music of that time. And if you were in, um, if you were in Africa, so, so on and so forth. So um, dream gig, I remember driving home and thinking, wow, that was really fun. I will never get this job, <laughs> but I, that was really fun spending an hour with George Lucas. And then I got a phone call and they, really in every single way changed my life. Yeah. This scene we'll look at here, you can hear very quickly um, just how many styles you kind of move through in a very short amount of time. <laughs> and, and um, you know, that you, you can't do that unless you kind of have the chops to do it and the technique to do it. It does take technique to do these things. So let's, let's have a look at this Phantom Train episode. So, you know, as you can all hear out there, you know, Joel has a lot of fun with the style in this and you hear a lot of fun major minor seven chords and sevenths in the bass and all these fun things that are, you know, kind of endemic to the period to some degree. Um, 
obviously you had a lot of fun on this one. Um, even if just this, this cue, I know it sounds like you had a fun on the whole thing and it was life changing as you said, but this scene is just so much fun. It is uh, that, that whole, that whole show, the phantom train was so much fun. You know, it's directed by the great, um, Ben Burt of star Wars fame, you know, Ben great audio the, man. Yeah. Among the, among other things the the created all the, the sound for star Wars created, the uh, the droids and the lightsaber sound and an enormously gifted man and an enormously knowledgeable about film music and he was actually one of the one of the main people to do the temp dubs on Star Wars uh, so he brought his yeah. massive record collection in and and he and George would sit there and, and pick out some temp music um, so yeah yeah well that's Ben Burt man. Ben, I mean, it's amazing how many people he's he's saved over the years, projects that he's saved over the years, and um, yeah, you know, I mean, there's some legendary stories out there, but you know, it's just one of those, you know, to your point earlier about kind of being born to do X, Y, Z. Um, if he wasn't born to do that, I don't know what he was born to do because uh, he he has he among all of the folks that are quite good at it too stick out. He sticks out the most for me because he finds a way to tell story through sound mm-hmm. design in a way that most people don't capture it. You know, I mean, that's a difficult thing to do. And Wally was one of the great examples of that. I mean, the first 25 minutes exactly. of that movie, it was just sound design and it's a story. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, there's so much expression that he gave to Wally's voice. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that's fun, man. So um, looking back, I mean, what are some of the, the things that you've taken from that experience on the the Chronicles back in the early nineties that um, you may have that were kind of learning experiences, maybe one or two big learning experiences that you took from the project to, to kind of help. A lot of our listeners are actually, you know, kind of young up and coming folks in the industry. And um, you know, you're constantly learning in our, you know, we are in our careers. What did you learn on that one? Well, I think, I think the main thing was, um, that in general, I feel like it takes a very long time to really become a thoroughly trained composer. Mm. And at the time, I think I started young indie when I was maybe 31 or 32. Yeah. Um, I definitely wasn't done with my training. Now that can be enormously scary if you're feeling like, you're a, you know, you're a surgeon going into the operating room and you really, you're not sure which tool to pick up, you know? (laughs) So, so what I would do was I just studied my ass off. I would just get every single score I could look at and just kind of try and catch up, you know, try and get the knowledge I needed. It wasn't until maybe five, six, seven years later where I, I had written enough music that I thought, okay, I, I kind of know my way around this thing. Uh, I, I, at least I know my way around writing for the orchestra. Um, I know my way around orchestration. Mm-hmm. And um, so I guess, I guess the takeaway from it was no matter how intimidating and no matter how unprepared you feel, know that probably most people feel that way going into a job and it's part of it. And so the only way to combat against that is, is incredibly thorough preparation. Just yeah. do your homework. And I think that also goes back to your training. I mean, I think 
so many people are bypassing, you know, important parts of training now, which is, you know, learning cannons and fugues, starting with Bach, learning, learning to write counterpoint. I mean, learn the building blocks and the foundation of the, you know, of the building before you build the building. Uh, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, I, the technology certainly helped to muddy the water, so to speak, um, yeah. you know, from yeah. a, from an education standpoint. But, you know, it's, there's an argument to be made there, though, that, you know, the, the technology part of it is also part of the education, um, it, particularly in this in- industry. But you're right. You know, it's the, it's the building blocks. And, and um, I, I have conversations with young composers from time to time when, you know, I'm on the road conducting. And a lot of them, and it, frighteningly so, um, couldn't tell you who, you know, Von Bingen was or Michaud or, you know, I mean, like really early music that was prior to even the building box and or building blocks in Western music, we might consider Bach and beyond. And um, you're right, you know, it's it's hard to know what to do with the roof before you've laid the concrete. So um, anyhow, 1994, the next year, um, another really big project, you know, as far as scope and the ability to kind of uh, let your wings fly, at least it sounds like that, Iron Will, which um, is one of my, my kids' favorites. You know, they, they, anything with a husky and a dog, you know, we have, we have German Shepherds. Um, so this is a special one, and, and it's one of my favorites too. Uh, this scene here I'd love to take a look at um, just really quickly here is the very end. It's the final race, and he's about to hit that finish line. And what I love so much about this scene is that you kind of get the culmination of the whole film, not just from a visual standpoint and emotional standpoint with the characters, but there's some references in the music um, that you've kind of played with, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, and then wham, we really get it here at the end. And not the least of which is this really, really cool whistling tune that came from the main title. But of course, now we hear everybody whistling um, to convince those amazing huskies to pull that sled over the finish line. So let's have a, have a look here.
so if you're not in tears at the end of this film and the end of this music score, um, my opinion is that something <laughs> is emotionally wrong with you. Um, this one really, really pulls at the heartstrings, and you know it would um, not do your contribution justice if we didn't talk about how much the music plays a role here at the end. And it is just unabashed, massive, emotional, beautiful Americana in a way. Ironic, you know, that the, the race is in Winnipeg, right? Um, yeah. But uh, it's just, it's such a cool scene. So what, how did this one come for you? Um, what was it like looking at the picture for the first time? And, you know, again, another opportunity to really stretch um, orchestral chops. Well, it was my first movie. Um, that's not true. I did a kind of a low budget feature called Samantha and, uh, which was a lovely story with Martha Plimpton playing a young violinist who finds out on her 18th birthday that she's actually adopted and she's not sure where she gets her talent to play the violin from Dermot Mulroney's in it. He plays his own cello parts. Yeah. It's, it's a all jealous. about string quartet. Yeah, yeah. It was really, it was kind of a labor of love and they didn't have any money to speak of for the the soundtrack so I, I basically put everything i had saved into producing an orchestral score you know i i didn't take a paycheck i put all of our savings in and i got a small orchestral score out of it um and so the good folks at intrada um got wind of this and they put out a soundtrack uh so they'd have fade in charles Hayde, the director of iron will um, got piles of soundtracks. He was listening to composers and, uh, Matt Walker, who has become one of my lifelong best friends was a, a young executive at Disney and passed on my music to Charlie. And he pulled that one out of a stack and liked it. And we met and we, we, um, fell into the kind of the Irish brotherhood thing <laughs> and, um, and uh, we hit it off and I was lucky enough to get hired. And, and yeah, so the, the whistle thing was, was from the script stage. So I was involved from before shooting, having to come up with that little tune and it had to be something short and sweet and identifiable. Um, and so then that last, that last sequence, I was involved from the start of shooting all the way through editorial. And I was involved in doing the temp, uh, the, the, the temp dub, the soundtrack temp. Um, and I pulled one of my favorite pieces um, for that last sequence, the Copeland Third Symphony, yeah. and I said, "You got to put this in here because yeah. that's exactly what I want to write." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that piece is a, a mammoth achievement. Um, you listen to it a hundred times, you'll learn something new each time you hear it. Um, exactly, that's a fun one. You know, looking looking back uh, through the eyes of my kids on this film, you know, I I saw this uh, immediately when it came out. When in theaters, I was 14 and um, now kind of having an opportunity to revisit it through their their lens, so to speak, has been really fun and fresh. And I mean, you're a father, you know how that goes. And and uh, it's amazing what music can do to a, a young child's brain. You know, you don't know it when you're there and you're a kid. I mean, you have your visceral memories of what it was like to hear this or to see that for the first time in a movie. But to see your kids going through it. And um, with this film, you know, they, they, they're very attuned to music. You know, they're surrounded by it in our household. And daddy, daddy, 
the music is so good here, especially at the end, the Huskies and the music, you know, it's just, um, it's, oh, that's lovely to hear. Yeah. Um, I love that the best. I mean, the, 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 it's, that's why the, all the, the Tinkerbell movies and all the things I did for yeah. Disney are so satisfying because there's a whole generation of kids that kind of sat in the back of their minivans and listened to this stuff. Yeah. So it's nice to hear. Brought to you by Santa Concerts. <laughs>